why don't I call myself love? Right. And so now I do. And that helps. Mm-hmm. But it's like all these little things that show us that we are worthy of love, worthy of compassion, and worthy of, of gentleness. Hey, hey, this is Dr. Kavita's son. Welcome to the Emotional Mastery Podcast. This podcast is about emotions, psychology, and relationships. Every week, I'll be sharing real-life tools to help you build self-awareness, a better relationship with yourself, and more fulfilling relationships with the people that matter to you. Listen, this is the foundation on which the rest of your life is built. So let's take the time to get it right. I'll see you on the inside. Well, hello, hello, Pod Squad. I hope you're all doing well. Happy Thursday. Um, as I always say, wherever you are in the world, whatever you're up to at this very moment, please know that I'm honored that you're joining us and that I get to meet you in your life in these moments and share a little bit of what I've learned along the way. As I say, by trial and error, more error than trial. So good to have you here. Today, we have a really, really special episode, something I've been looking forward to and planning for a while. We have Erica, Dr. Erica Bove here with us, and you guys have uh, been privy to some of her wisdom and her unique sort of perspective on things, which I benefit a lot from and our clients do as well. She's our head coach inside uh, Heal Your Relationships, our signature coaching program, and she's all things amazing. I consider her a personal friend and a mentor, honestly, in some ways. So super excited to have her. And we're going to be talking about and sort of riffing on mindful self-compassion. And so, Erica, welcome. Thank you, Kavi. It's so, so great to be here. You know how much I love you and our friendship. And now we get to be work partners together. It just fills my heart with so much joy. So I'm so grateful for all that you've taught me about self-compassion and, you know, just living each day more presently, more lovingly, um, you know, you've made such a difference for me in that way. So now we get to share all this with the world, which is just so, so beautiful. Oh, what a blessing. So mindful self-compassion. <laughs> what I think mindful self-compassion is, to me, the sort of the container of all the work that we do. It contains multitudes and it holds a sacred space with which you can do all the other work that we teach. So I'm really excited that we're touching on this today. And one of the things that, um, one of the places and people that Erica and I have learned a lot from uh, is Dr. Kristen Neff. She is a PhD scholar, researcher, and an expert in um, mindful self-compassion. She's written several books, done TEDx talk, TED Talks, maybe even TEDx, but TED Talks which are uh, viewed by millions. And um, she is just a shining light. Someone who is willing to look into what even just 10 years ago was considered too woo-woo, too hard to pin down or quantify, something that is you know, in the feminine realm. And she really brought it into the quantitative research realm and made it accessible practically to millions and millions of people. So super grateful for her. And we've learned a lot from her. But we wanted to start with what the heck is self-compassion, first of all? What is it? So Erica, share with us what your how you sort of think about 
self-compassion? Such a great question, Kavi, right? To talk about anything, we must define it. Yes. So I think there is self, there's compassion and then there's self-compassion. And I think it's very easy to be compassionate in the general sense, you know, compassionate with the world, with the people in my life, even with the earth, making mindful choices. However, for me personally, the hardest person to be compassionate with is myself. And I think that is rooted in, you know, a long lifetime of being a high achiever. And the only way I knew to do that was to crack the whip and sort of be, have my inner critic be very strong. So in the last few years, I've become acquainted with Dr. Kristen Neff's work and, and your work, Kavitha, and I would really define self-compassion as treating yourself the way you would treat a friend who's having a hard time. And so I think about this, you know, how would I treat my best friend having the same exact experience as I'm having right now? It's usually very different than my initial response. And so that is how I define self-compassion. And that's how Kristen Neff defines it too, is treating yourself the way you would treat a friend having a hard time. That is so beautiful. I am just thinking of the millions of moments in my life where I have abandoned myself in that moment before I knew the power of what it means to treat myself as my own best friend. Because early in my life, actually, embarrassingly, even till my mid-30s, I would ping pong, I don't know, Erica, if you can relate to any of this, but I would ping pong between either blaming somebody else and thinking that's the way to treat myself as my best friend, right? Like, how could you do this to me? You're bad. I'm going to, you know, protect myself from by getting back at you or cutting you out of my life or whatever it is. Or I would ping pong the other side. The ball is always, it's black and white, right? It's either them or us. And I would either go into what's wrong with me. I just don't know how to make a relationship. I don't know how to do this or this other person. So even though the concept of treating yourself as your best friend, I had that concept earlier, but I operationalized it in a way that was not very helpful. So I, I really like that we're not only defining it, but we're thinking about what does that actually look like? Yeah. And it's a process, you know, Kristen Neff talks about this. We have to learn how to be a good friend to ourselves and it's, we have to practice it. We have to embody it. It's not something that we're born knowing how to do. And and we have to encourage each other in it too. You know, I, sometimes I say to my, my friends, you know, if they ask me for some help with self-compassion, I say, what would you say if this were me? And then the light bulb goes off and they're like, oh, (laughs) I know exactly what to do. And you're right. And then we have to put it into practice. And so we learn how to be a good friend to ourselves. Love that. We learn how to be a good friend. You're not born knowing about friendship. You aren't born knowing how to be a good friend. We sort of stumble through it, even with long-term friends, right? There are moments of disconnection and we stumble through it and learn how to be good friends together. So really, that's a good point. Um, And I agree 100% with that definition. One of the other ways that I think about that best friend concept is I think of myself as my own primary caregiver. I am my own primary caregiver. Um, And when we think about a primary caregiver, they're not, you know, that's when you were young and there was a parent or a grandparent or maybe an aunt or an uncle, whoever raised you was there as the primary caregiver. 
but they're not, you know, taking you to exotic vacations or saying you're right all the time. They're just noticing you and they're showing up for you and they're making sure that you feel like they, you have the sort of the mental hand over your back, right? That's right. So beautiful. Okay. So it sounds lovely, right? And absolutely all of us want to do this. Who wouldn't want to do it? It sounds amazing. But then I know from firsthand experience, I really struggled with this. Even now I have to remind myself and come back to certain steps and go through it methodically because it's very easy for us to forget or find it difficult to be self-compassionate. Why? Such a great question. I think, you know, it's like a TV channel. I think a lot of us are programmed on criticism and self-judgment. Yes. Like I did not even realize until a few years ago in therapy that I was fluent in criticism. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, that. Totally fluent. I, I, I even dream in criticism, you know? And so <laughs> once I had that awareness, then I could start pausing as I heard myself, talk to myself, talk to other people and say, is that really how I want to show up in the world? Is that really the language I want to speak? the channel I want to be on. And there, I guess what, there are other channels, but it's like, sometimes it's like the button is stuck down. <laughs> like we can't, we can't switch. Yeah. So we have to learn other language. We have to learn how to hold ourselves gently. We have to learn how to slow down because yes. if we stay on our fast pace, you know, hamster wheel, we often won't be able to unprogram ourselves and then choose a different way. Yes. So I think that's where it all starts for me is like the awareness of what, what language am I using to speak with myself and even the tone. Yeah. Because even now with all the awareness I have, I'm still surprised at how much there's a little voice in the background that is a judgmental voice, whether it's like body image or, you know, why can't you be a better parent? You know, you, you know, you know what to do. Why can't you execute it? Like all those other perfect parents out there or, you know, whatever it is, I think that um, just understanding that there's no such thing as perfect. And this is all a work in progress. And even like calling myself by names of endearment, you know, there's a whole school uh, of like, you know, dear one, you know, sweetheart, I call my children love all the time. So like, why don't I call myself love? Right. And so now I do. And that helps. But it's like all these little things that show us that we are worthy of love, worthy of compassion and worthy of, of gentleness. That is uh, spot on. One of the things that I am learning to do for myself is when I cross a mirror, I'm trying to stop and just say, hey, you with a smile. And because I used to try to say something more than that. And then I'd get caught up in my head about whether I'm exaggerating, whether it's right, whether it's this and that and the other. So I decided, like you were saying, to just call out a gladness in just seeing myself. Just a gladness that I happen to see my reflection. So I really like the... Um, just noticing, slowing down. Even if you want to learn self-compassion, even if you're determined, even if you buy all the books and all the courses and all the mentors, 
if you don't slow down enough to hear your own thoughts and the voice inside, it just passes by like it's it's a car in a parallel lane, right? You're still doing your thing. Right. And the other, the other self-compassion seems like it's unrelated to your life. So I also think, um, and we were discussing this before the, the recording started, that some of the ways that we misunderstand what self-compassion is, we think, oh, it's like throwing myself a pity party. It's like indulging my mistakes. It's like letting myself off the hook. And if no one is ever accountable, then other people can just do what they want as well. It's all a woo-woo thing about letting people off the hook, right? Um, and this is one of the things that I used to worry about. Like I thought of my success in life as being somewhat reliant on me holding myself to high standards. Except at a certain point, when you are talking about going, so reaching for the next rung, you cannot criticize yourself there. You just, trust me, I've tried. <laughs> so all of these, I think, you know, I don't know if there's anything else that you've seen as an obstacle to you becoming self-compassionate. Yeah, I mean, I think at Emotional Mastery, like, you know, we and all the women we work with are high achieving women, yes. you know, professional women. And everyone has had their path to success. It is amazing how similar our stories are to each other. And so, you know, as a physician, as a, as a working mother, as, you know, as a life coach now, I think that there's this perfectionist drive. And it, like, like you, Kavitha, like my inner critic was for many years, how I got to where I got, you know, and you know, if I got a 98 on a test, it was like, well, let's figure out the other 2% and then crack the whip. And then, you know, and, and just being relentless, but that's exhausting. You know, it, it steals energy. And so when I started thinking about, okay, how can I love myself more? How can I, you know, I was in, a, in the middle of a divorce. How can I heal from the divorce? The self-compassion started to come up, but I was really worried that I, it would like slow my trajectory, that it would say, you know, like that I would somehow just stop achieving because I'm like, well, how, you know, who's going to crack the whip? How am I, you know, how am I going to keep up my high standards for myself? And I think it's because that I did hold those beliefs about self-compassion, that there was, you know, a laziness in it, that there was a self-indulgence, self a slacking, you know, all those things. But what I didn't realize is that I'm still me yes. and I still have the same, you know, aspirations drive to contribute to the world, to be a good person, to live according to my values and my inner critic, that's not why I have achieved those things. It's because of the larger picture of who I am and what I want to contribute to the world. And so once I realized that I, and I started to actually look at the data like that, actually people who are self-compassionate, the way that fMRIs of the brain and all the ways that we actually can even achieve more when we're self-compassionate number number one it feels better to yeah. ourselves and, and number two objectively it does not hold us back yes and yeah. so I started experimenting right of course I have to try this out with myself and I started to say okay is this really true like if I give myself a deadline and I say I'm going to bed at 10 p.m no matter what because I love myself and because I need sleep and I'm giving a talk the next day and for me 
I can do my best and I can get sleep. Like that's something that in my previous, you know, 10 years ago was not even in my worldview that I could both get rest and give a talk at the same time. Right. And then I learned, like, I would still knock it out of the park, you know, very humbly speaking, but people would say, Oh, you know, I love your talk. I was so inspired. I learned so much. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. There is another way of doing this that is not so costly to myself. I have more gas in the tank and I'm still able to contribute in the world and maybe even in a better way. Maybe answers come to me that might, if I was, you know, just running on empty and three cups of coffee. So I think that it does take a little bit of like practice within ourselves to see what works for us. Yeah. Uh, But I do find that, you know, for instance, like I was running a race recently and I have been practicing self-compassion for a while now. And that, that means that if I start to hear myself using a tone or words of self-judgment, I say, oh my goodness, I love you. (laughs) You know, I, I like stop the train and, 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 and redirect. And so my, my internal dialogue has gotten better, but I didn't connect that to my running because for so long, you know, especially in my running career, uh, earlier in my life, it was that inner critic that was relentless that I thought was the source of my success. So I, I ran a 10 K recently in Chicago and I was blown away by the new way that I was speaking to myself. Like you've got this breathe, you know, you know, you're strong, you know, you're, you know, you know, you've got this. And not like, oh, I can't believe you better like, you know, pick up the pace. You're not going to meet your goal. It was like, I was just holding myself with so much um, belief in myself. Yep. And with that, with that, I was like, I can still run a strong race. And it it felt so much better. And that to me was like a breakthrough because I had that awareness that by practicing this over time, you know, in my time, actually, I mean, as a side note, was better than it used to be. And that was more objective evidence to me that like, oh, you know, in another way, even more proof that like, I can still have my high standards for myself and treat myself with love, love and kindness and compassion. And it just, it just makes me feel so much better. Love, love, love everything about that. You know, one of the things that we um, teach in our programs is the difference between self-criticism versus your drive. Because we all many high achieving women, we tend to conflate the two, right? Like Erica was saying, and I myself for a long time thought that my drive itself came from holding myself high standards, um, which obviously you will sometimes not reach. And then I'd be stuck in this, in the self-criticism. And so drive can exist. And in fact is unleashed when you remove this shackle of self-criticism, but we think they're one and the same, so we slow ourselves down. And one of the things I've noticed is that after a certain point in your career, right, or in your life, you have to think outside the box. You need creative solutions. And creativity means that you need to be relaxed, right? When you're relaxed, you can actually see things that you couldn't see otherwise, possibilities that exist outside of the norm. And to get to that, I want to not waste my inner energy, my mental energy on ping-ponging between who's right and who's to blame and what's, did I make a mistake and what's wrong with me and I practice so much and maybe I'm not disciplined enough and maybe I'll just always be overweight and blah, whatever it is that we're struggling with. Or is it somebody else's fault? It's because my partner brings in all these donuts and if I'd married somebody else, So I ping pong and that means all that mental energy 
cannot be used for creative thinking. So I say stuck, right? So drive and self-criticism actually have to be divorced for it to be unshackled and for you to really take off at a certain time, at a certain point. So not only is it not going to reduce your success, it is going to, as Erica pointed out, it is going to have you take off in ways that you wouldn't have even thought possible when you learn how to tame that self-criticism and taming self-criticism alone will not make you self-compassionate. There are actually three steps to self-compassion that Kristen Neff talked about that we didn't even realize until we read her work that we had been doing the same thing in HYR. We just call it different names, right? But it's it's fascinating. All truth finally meets in one place. So what are the three steps, um, Erica? Because I know you've been actually practicing these three. Yeah. Yeah, so there's three pillars to mindful self-compassion in Kristen Neff's schema. And one of them is self-kindness. And so that is obvious. It means learning how to be kind to ourselves and learning how to soothe ourselves. And in our Heal Your Relationships program, that's very much where we start is that awareness of our feelings and our current state, which does involve slowing down, which for Mm -hmm. me was hard in the beginning. It gets better with time. But that self-kindness, that self-soothing, that really helps us to give ourselves that self-love and self-compassion. The second pillar of mindful self-compassion is common humanity. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when we're in a, a rut in a you know self-judgmental state, we think like, like, why can't I do this like other people? Or I'm the only one who does such a bad job with this. But when we actually look, you know, and think about the fact that we're all human beings. Sometimes I say to myself, you know, I really wonder if anybody else could have done better with this or, you know, it is, it is, it is very, um, you know, it makes sense that you had this response because you're a human being having, having a human experience and, you know, just be present for yourself in this moment because this is part of common humanity, right? And I I think that that awareness that we are all humans with the wiring of being a human being, we talk about that in the HYR curriculum. And also we have small group settings where they're intimate weekly meetings. Um, It's a beautiful experience where our groups stay connected forever, you know, over text chains and even like weekend trips together. And it's, it's a very special experience. I think it's that sense of interconnectedness and belonging that we all want when we scroll social media, when we, you know, want to belong to something greater than ourselves, but especially with COVID and everything, we've all become so isolated. So that common humanity is a second pillar. And that is like the glue of what we do in HYR. So it's so cool to read about this um, in her work. And then also the, the third pillar is mindfulness. And I know we read a lot about mindfulness and it's, you know, there's courses on it and it's like, okay, well, you just have to slow down and you have to meditate for X amount of time a day. We have a very structured approach to helping people become more mindful. And when I say people, I mean high achieving professional women who have a a to-do list that's, you know, longer than, uh, you know, the, 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 a very, very long list of things. It's it's like a never ending to do list because when one thing comes off, the other thing comes on and it's just like almost like a hamster wheel. So 
What we do in HYR is we have a very tailored approach for each person to find exactly when we'll work for them. And we have a coach who provides the structure and support, ongoing support for our clients. And we really focus and imagine the school bus of our mind. And when we take even five minutes a day to pause and just get curious about which passengers are we say are on on the school bus, which feelings and thoughts are on the school bus, then we start to get more awareness and clarity, you know, about pausing and and perhaps responding in a way that serves us instead of maybe a automatic response that does not, does not serve us. And so just to review the three pillars of mindful self-compassion for Dr. Her Dr. Kristen Knapp are self-kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness. And beautifully, these are interwoven into our, our 10-week Heal Your Relationships program that has helped hundreds of successful women at this point to achieve clarity and to thrive in their personal and professional lives. Oh my gosh, isn't that, uh, I just found it so fascinating that the pillars with which we have created HYR and helped hundreds of people are the pillars, they're just, they use different words, but they're the same concept that has been validated by thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in research studies by Dr. Neff. I mean, that just, it gave me chills. So really, really essential, I think. And, you know, our program is called Heal Your Relationships. And one of the ways that I hurt myself and my relationships was the idea that somebody has to be blamed, something feels uncomfortable, somebody has to be blamed. And then I would ping pong between whether it's me, which would lead me down a spiral of shame and loneliness, which by the way, those two have been linked to low resilience and even uh, low immune immunity, higher chance of infections, um, higher chance of re-traumatizing yourself after a trauma, so many negative consequences from shame and loneliness, which happens when we see relationships as black and white. And I would do that to myself and I'd have all these, including physical health, all kinds of consequences. Or then I would ping pong to, well, I need to tell that person off or give them a piece of my mind or cut them off from my life. Or I really desperately need them in my life. So I'll just have to put up with it and walk on eggshells, right? So this, the concept that we're talking about here is the foundation of good relationships because everything starts with your relationship with yourself. That's your primary relationship. If that's off course and off kilter, we can't really even see clearly what's happening in our other relationship because the mental noise gets in the way. So um, yes, relationship work that we do involves this as the foundation because then communication, connection, trust building, all that gets easier when you're not second guessing yourself all the time. That's right. And I mean, that's what the data shows, Kavitha. As you know, you know this data well, that the benefits of mindful self-compassion are reduced depression, reduced anxiety, reduced stress, reduced shame. And then also with that comes a corresponding increase in happiness, satisfaction, self-confidence, and and physical health, right? These things, I mean, the, the immune system and our relationships and our emotional mastery, they all go hand in hand. And so, you know, when I say it feels better to do this to myself, you know, uh, there's, there's objective data that 
that this is is proven and also the the foundation of what we do the first half of hyr of that curriculum is actually emotional mastery like you just said and then we then move on once we have those ninja skills uh to be kind with ourselves then we move on and then involve another person in, and start to heal those relationships we have to heal ourselves first and i really do believe that mindful self-compassion is the antidote to shame it really is it really and you know i just wanted to mention though that dr neff talks about in the, this in her book which is so true this notion of backdraft mm-hmm. which is where sometimes it actually starts to feel worse before it starts to feel better that's- and that's because yeah because these 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 new ways of living are so counterintuitive to what we have known but once we start to live them we see the the fruits of being able to be with ourselves being able to be with other people show up as our most authentic self but you know it, it can be a little uncomfortable in the short term but as we always say you know in HYR number one do not abandon yourself and we teach very practical ways how to not to do that and then number two we tolerate discomfort in the service of growth and that is why we are here on this earth is to grow and it's the mindful self-compassion that allows us to be the most expansive uh version of ourselves and the brightest the best the most beautiful version of ourselves agreed agreed and i love that you said it could feel uncomfortable more uncomfortable than you're used to in the beginning and we sometimes think oh this is not working i feel like shit what why am i doing this myself that's not self-compassion if i'm like feeling worse But often we just have not noticed the mental noise before because we have suppressed it by either scrolling or shopping or having a drink or eating or whatever else. Um, Or we have spent it ruminating and rumination actually releases some dopamine. So in the short term, it can feel vindicating, right? So when you remove all these false crutches, it can feel like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing too much. Ah, I don't know what to do with this. But if you have a process and someone to help you lead you by hand through the steps, that's a very short-lived amount of time because you will know what to do with what's coming up. And then you'll feel really like proud of yourself because there's a sense of mastery and growth. Yes, 100%. And also with that, so we do coaching. I mean, that's one of the pillars of what we do uh, at Emotional Mastery. And so we have all three of us are physician coaches and we love what we do. We're passionate about this work. And so when we talk about taming the inner critic, what that also means is transforming that inner critic into a very supportive inner coach. Yeah. And we know that all of coaching is predicated on the fact that we have a circumstance which is neutral. Mm-hmm. anybody in a court of law would agree to that circumstance, right? That's just very neutral. It's our thoughts, our self-talk and our feelings about that circumstance that then affects how we have our results in the world through our actions. And so our thoughts create our feelings, our feelings then drive our actions and our actions then drive how we show up in the world. So a lot of it is actually the words, like the thoughts that we are having about our experience that create these feelings. And some of them are very uncomfortable when it's like, kind of, like I said before, it's like switching the channel, like switching the channel off of criticism by saying, instead of like, Oh, you know, you're doing a terrible job. You better speed up. Like that's a thought, right? That's just a thought. If I can switch that language to, 
you've got this. I know you've got this, you know, pick up the pace. You're so strong. It's a whole different, that then those two different models generate very different feelings and then very different results because of the way I'm talking to myself. And that is what we do through coaching is we shine a light on those thoughts. We make them visible and also the feelings, the feelings, you know, sometimes we start with the feelings sometimes we start with the thoughts. It's, that's where uh, the tailored approach comes in. But then by doing that, then the net result is at the end of the day, a very self-compassionate, supportive inner coach, yes, as well as the outer coach support. Yes. Our goal by the end of HYR is to make sure that you have the beginnings of an inner coach so that you can learn to trust yourself. That's, yes. that's the goal. So, man... What an amazing, wonderful, in-depth. I learned so much, like literally look at my page. Ah, I'm taking notes too. I'm taking notes. (laughs) Page of notes from our discussion here. This was so rich and so fun. Um, Next week, we're going to go a little bit even deeper. So now we know what is self-compassion? Why do we struggle with it? What are our misconceptions and obstacles that get in the way of being self-compassionate, including this notion that it'll make us less sort of have less drive or something. And then the three components of self-compassion and how we actually help you achieve it in our program step-by-step. Like you, whether you do it with us or someone else, you need a mentor who can help you see your thoughts and see how you're creating this situation, pain, the situation, as Erica said, in a court of law, everybody would agree that that's a situation. But two people with the same situation can create very different results, right? And so whether you do it with us or somebody else, get a coach to hold your hand so you're not spending the next 20 years just going round and round in the same thoughts, right? So the three steps of self-compassion, and we also looked at how you want to learn how to slow down first to make space for even this exploration. And also why is it that when you have self-compassion, it actually unleashes your creativity, your self-confidence and your problem solving and your ability to solve even the most stickiest um, situations and problems that maybe you've dealt with over and over for years and feel like, ah, there's no solution here. There is always a solution that we're not aware of yet because of our level of thinking isn't there yet. So in our degree of resistance, yes. we resist so much. I think of all the energy that we spend literally putting pressure against a concrete wall. Yes. Right. And when we drop the resistance, we realize maybe the wall is only six feet tall and we can just like go around it or something, yes. you know? So it's like, I do it totally agree that our, our highest selves are unleashed when we start to treat ourselves with love and compassion and you know, even greater power, like 10x when we do this in community. And that's oh one thing gosh. I love so much about about our program is that we do this in a very intimate small group setting. And, you know, Kavitha, you and your friendship keeps me accountable to living you know, according to my values. And, you know, I hope the same is true for, for you course. and me. And very much. It just it just it it uh it just magnifies it so many times when we can all do this together as well. It's a, yes. it's a beautiful thing. Hundred percent. So next week. Erica and I are actually going to go deeper and share some specific tools that you can use in the moment with examples of how we do it in our actual lives. 
you know, we have examples from parenting and from when we might have a goal to work out and we don't feel like it or, you know, all the things that get in the way or when our partner or our spouse is rolling their eyes and we're starting to feel triggered, right? All of these different situations, we're going to share with you our specific ways of operationalizing this in our own lives. And I think um, that episode will give you lots of ideas for you to be able to start implementing some of these right away. Um, so thank you for joining us for this episode. We had so much fun. I could talk to Erica all day. <laughs> me too. Kabi, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. 100%. Um, it's an honor to have you. And uh, we look forward to chatting with you all next week on the specific tools as well. Take care and don't abandon yourself. Bye. Mwah. Mwah. If this podcast means something to you, it would mean so much to me if you'd be willing to take 30 seconds to do one or all of these three things. First, can you follow or subscribe to Emotional Mastery? Following the podcast helps you because you'll never miss an episode and it helps us because you'll never miss an episode. So to do this, just go to the Emotional Mastery show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and tap on the plus sign on the top right corner or click on the button that says follow. This is the most important thing for the podcast to reach more people. And while you're there, if you'd be willing to give us a five-star rating and a review and share an episode you love with a friend, I'd be so grateful. We appreciate you very, very much. Thank you.